studies problems of pluralism, law, and religion, and in particular contemporary efforts to rethink Islamic norms and law in Asia, Europe, and North America. <coughs> he has a long publication list, but his most recent book on Asia is Islam, Law, and Equality in Indonesia, an Anthropology of Public Reasoning that came out with Cambridge University Press in 2003. And on Europe, he has two recent books. First, Why the French Don't Like Headscarves, that came out with Princeton in 2007, uh, and concerned current debates in France on Islam and laïcité. And an even more recent book, Can Islam Be French, that also came out with Princeton in 2009, and treats Muslim debates and institutions in France. By the way, both of these books will be uh, uh, on sale at a substantial uh, publisher's discount this evening, and John will be very happy to sign any copies uh, if, you, if you are interested in having the author sign the book. He is soon to bring out, uh, from Cambridge University Press, a particularly ambitious <coughs> work called The New Anthropology of Islam. He also writes regularly for the Boston Review. At present, he is working on three concurrent research projects, the first being the interplay of civil law and religious norms on family matters in Western countries, the second, how judges provide public justifications for their decisions in Islamic judicial systems, and the third, changing public discursive <coughs> frameworks concerning Islam and Muslim, Muslims across Europe. At, at present, while he is in England, he is, he is pursuing research on England's uh, Sharia councils. Today's lecture on Islam, secularisms, and law across Europe is the third of the three lectures which um, John Bowen has given. In the first, he looked at approaches, uh, uh, academic and other, to secularism. In the second, he looked at some of the problems of studying Islam across time and space, and, I mean, how to develop a comparative method. And in this third lecture, he will turn uh, to the understandings he will build on those understandings of Islam and secularism that he explored in his uh, earlier talks so as to compare recent processes of social and legal adaptation in Europe. He will begin with a contrast between England and France that will touch on histories of immigration, the respective legal frameworks, and the directions of normative and legal thinking by legal and religious scholars in the two countries. He will make a few forays beyond that out into the North American and German cases so as to <coughs> extend the comparative analysis. It's a great pleasure to welcome John Bowen and over to you. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for uh, coming out tonight, uh, all of you. In this, the third lecture in this series on Islam, Secularisms, and the Law in the Contemporary World, I focus on Europe and North America. Uh, sorry, German fans, I won't get, won't get there, except for a few brief remarks. I try to understand the ways in which Muslims in each of these places are creating new religious institutions and new modes of religious reasoning. Across the three lectures, I've tried to respond to a broader set of questions as well, concerning the roles played by religious authorities and institutions in public life. In the first talk, I asked how we might most usefully understand secularism 
if we wish to understand politics and religion across a broad range of societies. I, I argued against a notion of the secular as a single idea unfolding across the West and for, and for a comparative focus on modes of governance that both support and limit the reach of religions. I looked at France to argue that national models, being the ideological spin-offs of governance, are useless in analyzing those processes. The term laicite in the French case has a rhetorical value, not an analytical one, I argued. I looked at Indonesia then to argue that even in states with Islamic legal systems, judges and legislators seek ways to encompass religions, which was my definition of secularism. In the second lecture, I started from Islam and asked how we can study it in a way that includes both its shared tradition and the diversity of its local social forms. Pakistanis and Nigerians draw on similar texts and modes of reasoning, but what they produce are very different ways of living Islam. I argued that we need to start from two key features of Islam. One is its genealogical method, used to trace an idea or practice along historical chains, chains to determine its legitimacy. The other is its openness to contextualization, through which Muslims shape those legitimate ideas and practices to the conditions of their lives. Tonight, I try to bring the two strands of this series together and ask how Muslims engage in this double process of genealogical reasoning and contextual adapting in relatively new places. I ask how diverse elements, including the histories of immigration and the legal frameworks of each host country, shape the directions of normative and legal thinking by legal and religious scholars. And I want to see how these processes of adapting institutions articulate with the legal systems already in place in Europe and North America. Now it's tempting to think about Western Europe and North America as a kind of laboratory for studying social adaptation. Although the Muslim presence is an old one, particularly in southeastern and southwestern parts of Europe, new streams of Muslim, Muslim workers and families first arrived in, these, arrived in these countries during the mid-20th century earlier in some places, such as France and Britain, later in others, such as Sweden and Spain. Most came from South Asia, North and West Africa, and Turkey, although increasing numbers have arrived more recently from other places. This shows you uh, percent, as percentages of local populations. Given this relative simultaneity, we ought to be able, be able to formulate and test hypotheses about <coughs> how Muslim immigrants have adapted to existing ways of life in each of several countries. <coughs> Indeed, this is precisely what I see as my own long-term project. But these immigration experiences were not laboratory experiments, but real-life historical trajectories. Many things are different between, say, France and Germany. Most French Muslims come from countries once colonized by France, and so they arrive with some degree of familiarity with French language and with colonial and post-colonial institutions shaped by France. Not so in Germany, where Turks arrived as part of circular labor migration policies that sought to minimize any such contact. France has combined universalistic civic principles with racism and post-colonial bitterness. Germany has moved at glacial speed from ethnic notions of national belonging to entertain the idea that immigrants could become citizens. And this is just the beginning. Other pairs of countries differ along other dimensions, including colonial legal practices, notions of religion's place in public life, and whether immigrants are encouraged or not to form civic associations. And all these host country differences have led to different responses by Muslim immigrants. How then do we construct illuminating comparisons? 
Let me mention two of the, uh, the several axes of comparison that I think important. I won't develop them systematically tonight. They point toward future research rather than summarize current findings, but they do underlie some of what I have to say here. One regards the social densities of settlement or concentration effects in different countries. Do people live largely with people like themselves? And how much like them? In England, we can find streets and neighborhoods of multiple similarities, such as a street I visited in Leicester, where everyone is a Sufi-oriented Muslim trader who originated in Gujarat and arrived in England by way of East Africa, every single house on that street. In France, by contrast, we find broad mixtures of North Africans, West Africans, Native French, and other Europeans in the large council housing units called HLM or Cité. The contrast arises from very different situations in the countries of origin, much more fine-grained ethnic and religious distinctions in South Asia than in North Africa, and also from how people arrived here. Chain migrations of entire villages in South Asia to neighborhoods in British cities, versus French policies of recruiting workers from across North Africa, making it more diffuse. These facts of migration and settlement then shape the sense of community among migrants in very practical ways. How important is it to learn the language of the host country? Less so if you live surrounded by others speaking Urdu or Bengali in a neighborhood of Birmingham or East London. More so if you live in a mixed origins housing area in a French city. How much authority do religious leaders from the old country have here? More authority if ties of village and mosque are reproduced in a Bradford neighborhood, less so if Muslims in Paris find themselves sharing only a broad sense of North African identity and a shared obligation to worship. <clears throat> a second axis of comparison concerns the openness of legal actors or systems to religious norms and acts, or the legal legitimacy of religion. Does a judge ever consider it justifiable to treat an Islamic divorce proclaimed by the husband in, say, Morocco as having civil effects in, say, France? Can an Islamic divorce affected in Britain or France ever have civil consequences there? Should a divorce of two Iranian nationals be judged according to Iranian, and thus Islamic law, or by the law of the host country? For that matter, does the state want to get into the business of deciding how Orthodox Jews ought to define Jewishness for purposes of school admission, as the new Supreme Court here has done? Now, to some extent, civil judges in all countries of Western Europe and North America are working with the same elements of international private law, including the desire not to overly disrupt people's lives by changing their marital status as they traverse national boundaries, and to honor bilateral conventions. They're also working with similar national desiderata, such as the desire not to become overly entangled in religious matters, and the requirement that interests of ordre public or public policy be respected. But they can balance these considerations in different ways. German judges are more likely than French judges to decide a case based on foreign law containing religious elements. English, England allows state-supported schools to discriminate on the basis of a religious test. The United States would not do so and, so, and so on and so forth. One would expect Muslims to craft their institutions with these considerations in mind, and indeed that's what they've been doing. That's the broader set of questions. In what I will talk about in the remainder of tonight's talk, I want to take a particular challenge facing Muslims and then ask how they've responded to that challenge in each of three contexts contemporary England, France, and the United States. I'll talk more about the first and the other two. Partly because I've written so much about France. That wasn't the plug. 
With, but legal actors in host countries are not simply a context for Muslims. They have innovated and ruled as well. So the question really has to do with the ways in which Islamic actors and civil law actors have sought out overlaps and articulations between civil and Islamic law. The shared challenge is how to get a religious divorce if you're a Muslim woman living in countries without Islamic courts. Now, in classical Islamic jurisprudence, individual Muslims can do many things with legal effect and need no judges or courts to do so. They can marry, divorce, reconcile, make gifts, bequeath, and so on without the involvement of an authority. So a man can divorce his wife in the procedure called talaq by saying he does so, then he can take her back within a specified period, and he can do so again. But the third time is more or less final. The more or less need not concern us here. If he divorces her, he then must pay any marriage payment, mahar. It is, I'll try to minimize the use of Islamic terms. That's, that's one I will use, mahar, meaning a gift from the man to the woman that's part of marriage. He must pay any payment that's gone unpaid, and he's also required to pay maintenance to her. Now, there's another possibility, which is a woman may ask her husband to divorce her, and usually he will do so only if she agrees to repay the mahar or forego her rights over unpaid mahar. In places where mahar is set way above the level of the groom to pay, such as Iran or some parts of South Asia, this rule gives the wife a strong bargaining position. Now, the Prophet Muhammad also sometimes acted as a judge and made rulings concerning marriage and divorce, and the early, early Muslim judge, or qadi, could dissolve a marriage if the husband were, husband were proved to be impotent or to have deserted her. In those cases, she was due her mahar. So three possible, basic possible uh, uh, acts. A man initiates a divorce, and he has to pay the mahar that's unpaid, and she can keep whatever has been paid. A woman initiates the divorce, gets him to pronounce the talak, and has to repay mahar, doesn't get any unpaid mahar, or a judicial divorce on certain grounds. In that case, she's due the mahar. Now today, the vast majority of Muslims live in countries with modern legal systems, the complex product of colonial imposition and extra or post-colonial borrowings. The former British colonies apply forms of common law. Those of the French and Dutch apply what is a recognizable part of the civil law tradition. Most of these states include what they call Islamic law as part of these legal systems in the form of codes or statutes or jurisprudence. Among other things, these Islamic codes regulate how a woman gets a divorce. Speaking very broadly, those codes that grew out of civil law traditions make marriage and divorce part of the system of positive law as public matters suitable for state regulation. In Indonesia, for example, the law provides the content of Islamic law and the judge enacts that code. He is not supposed to look at the Quran or into a book of fiqh to see what to do. In Tunisia's code is a secular one that forbids any divorce proclamation outside the court. In India, obviously part of the civil law <coughs> jurisdiction, the British did something quite different. They sought to codify the ancient legal traditions of their subjects so that judges and administrators, whatever their own religious persuasions, could enforce them. Most importantly, Hindu law for Hindus and Anglo-Mohammedan law for Muslims. These personal status laws became symbols of identity and determination. They're putatively codifications of Islamic jurisprudence, fiqh, and not state-created law. That's the theory. Thus, a judge might feel himself perfectly in his right to look into a book of fiqh, jurisprudence, or at the Quran 
to see what Islam says, even if he is a Christian or a Hindu, as indeed a Hindu judge did in the famous Shahbano case. In this system, Islam is a kind of common law, but one with a scriptural base. In a crucial way, one's rights as a Muslim there have not been positivized in that they are not in theory limited by the actions of the state. And by the 1930s, one saw the emergence in South Asia of unofficial Islamic tribunals to hear divorce cases and other matters. In these and in other Muslim-majority countries, post-colonial legal reforms have moved toward a kind of a general women's divorce, where a judge dissolves a marriage, sorry, this is what I was just talking about, where a judge dissolves a marriage and disposes of the mahar according to who is thought to be at fault. This is speaking very, very broadly. But differences between countries shaped by colonial experiences have carried over into the practices and approaches of Muslims who have moved to the countries of the former colonizers. South Asians moving to Great Britain took with them the set of ideas and habits about personal status <coughs> that had developed under British rule of the Indies. They assumed that marriage and divorce were matters to be worked out among Muslims, with Islamic institutions perhaps, and without need for a judicial intervention. In the other major post-colonial migration, North Africans moving to France took with them ideas and habits about civil law forged in the colonial experience and reinforced by post-colonial judicial reform, particularly in Tunisia from where originate most major heads of French Islamic inst institutes. They assumed, these French Muslims, that marriage and divorce were public things, not contractual, and were matters for statutes and the judiciary. Indonesia, by the way, could have been the third major case, but very few Indonesian Muslims ended up moving to the Netherlands. But things are still more complicated because these two approaches stood in very different relationships to the legal systems of England and France. The ideas about marriage and divorce brought to France by North Africans, that it was up to the state to legislate, converged with French expectations because they added up to a shared acknowledgement of the supremacy of state law. In Tunisia, when you're divorced, you're divorced, period, said one leading Islamic actor to me in Paris, explaining why they did not need Islamic Sharia councils. I'll come to that. But the corresponding ideas brought to England by South Asians represented a sharp challenge to English ideas of a common law. If Muslims were to handle marriage and divorce themselves, then the civil courts would be, in effect, ceding territory. Why don't they just let us take care of these matters, said one Pakistani scholar to me in London. After all, that's what they did in colonial days. Understandably, English judges are reticent to take this step. So England has become the site for lively debates about the uniformity of law and the role of private mediation and arbitration in the overall legal world, including many of the people in this, in this room who are prominent actors in these debates. While in France, debates have turned on other things, on the shared values and behaviors expected of French citizens, hence issues of headscarves and halal. The situation in England is also the product of two features of Muslims' adaptation to local life. One is the specific way in which Muslims and others have been migrating from certain districts in South Asia to England since the 1950s. More than anywhere else in Europe, Muslims living in England today tend to live in neighborhoods with other Muslims who came from the same places in Bangladesh, Pakistan, or India. To continue the use of home country languages and to follow religious teachings of those places. The Mirpur district of Pakistani Kashmir accounts for many, probably most, of the Pakistanis in England today, as does the Silhet district of Bangladesh for Bangladeshis. Parts of Birmingham, Bradford, or Leeds are mainly lived in by people speaking Urdu. 
Most families who came from South Asia try to arrange marriages between their England-born sons or daughters and close relatives back home. A report, maybe some of you saw it, out of the House of Lords last month even claimed that over one-half one of Pakistani marriages conducted by people of Pakistani descent but born in the, in the UK are with cousins, and over half are with spouses born in Pakistan. I don't know if this is demographically plausible, but there you are. That was the report. These groups are then further subdivided by theological tendency, by Alvi Sufis, Deobandi Hanafis, Al-Hadith, as well as Ismailis, Ithna Ashari Shiites, and so forth. These features of immigration into England, people moving from one particular community with a particular theological tendency into a neighborhood in an English city, met with a specific structure of opportunity. And here's the second set of processes, ones that in England facilitate organizing for political or legal action on the basis of local ethnic or religious community ties. In the 1970s, aid was given to ethnic-based associations that lobbied with local school boards or councils on the, for Islamic needs, for food, for religious materials, etc. By the 1980s, it was more and more mosque-based associations that did so. And all this fits into the English structure of opportunity. Things get done locally here and by community action. That they might sort out things on a religious basis merely adds another denomination to the nonconformist list, so to speak. Muslims can form state-funded Muslim-only schools, be registered to conduct marriages in their mosques, and form Islam-based associations following the path already laid down by Methodists, Quakers, and Jews. It's hardly surprising, then, that in the 1980s there began to appear Islamic Sharia councils in several cities with high Muslim concentrations. And today Muslims can easily find Islamic councils in London, Birmingham, Bradford, Manchester, and elsewhere. I've been working with two of these councils today. The Muslim Arbitration Tribunal, headquartered at the Sufi Hejaz College north of London, deals with conflicts over mosque authority or ownership, commercial disputes, and sometimes matters of conflict within a family. The director, Faiz Siddiqui, is a barrister in the eyes of the English legal system, as well as the son of a Sufi saint or peer, and he's tried to run the tribunal as a way of bringing about decisions that are both religiously valid and legally relevant. Usually a solicitor is involved in the proceedings and can draw up an agreement for binding arbitration. And there's the, his Hijaz College uh, near Nuneaton on a snowy day in February. Other institutions offer various forms of non-binding mediation, where any documents produced are not enforceable in civil court. Some of these institutions are quite informal, in that a relative or local imam might be called upon to resolve dispute. I've been studying the largest and most formalized of these, of which are members here tonight, London's Islamic Sharia Council, with offices in a large house uh, just recently renovated on a quiet residential area of Leighton in East London. On a recent day, I was sitting in on proceedings or, or surgery. <coughs> a woman and her parents came to see about getting an Islamic divorce from her husband. The civil divorce had already been given. Two different parties came seeking legal advice, and a marriage was performed, both civil and religious. The mosque is registered to do this. I was a witness, and so as a guest, I got the first piece of wedding cake. Of, of this array of matters, it's only requests for Islamic divorce brought by women that eventually become cases at the Islamic Sharia Council. These uh, dis Islamic divorces, or rather dissolutions of marriage, have no civil law effect, and they do not settle matters of asset division or child custody. They do deal with marriage payments, however. Once a month, a handful of scholars affiliated with the council meet in a room next to the large Regent's Park Mosque in central London and review case files 
and when they have enough information, grant divorces. The scholars come from Pakistan, Bangladesh, Saudi Arabia, and they also rely on colleagues from Somalia, Sudan, and elsewhere to interview petitioners in their own languages. Among themselves, the scholars deliberate in English, Arabic, and sometimes in Urdu, depending on who is sitting at the table, making things complicated for others of us. Each of these cases presents its own complicated history, but many, if not most, involve transnational journeys. <clears throat> At one recent meeting, the council considered seven cases. These were all women's petitions for Islamic divorce. The women had been born in Pakistan, Somalia, and Mauritius. One had married in Abu Dhabi and another in Yemen, and husbands were living in Italy, Pakistan, Mauritius, and in two cases, places unknown. The council either dissolved the marriage in question or asked for more information to determine the husband's whereabouts. With a divorce letter in hand, uh, the woman can then remarry or claim assets in a country practicing Islamic law, Pakistan, for example. Or if she remarries in England, she will be able to satisfy relatives and neighbors, and perhaps herself, that she has not sinned. Now, the scholars of the Islamic Sharia Council would rather that husbands would grant a divorce outright. It would save them a lot of trouble. And if he agrees to do so, then they send him a certificate called a, a talaknama, which stipulates that the wife is to be given her mahar or all of it if the marriage was consummated, half of it if it was not. But how do you prove that the marriage was consummated? I asked one of the leading scholars. In a case we decided, this is Soheb Hassan, and he told me, in a case we decided recently, the couple had married in Karachi. He had been living in England and went back there to get a wife. His parents were pressuring him to marry this girl. They were upset that he was dating girls, and Muslim parents will get upset and find a wife, but he did not want her. When they came to us, he said that they had not consummated the marriage, and so she was due only one half the mahar, but she said they had consummated. Well, some scholars wrote that if the couple is in khalwat, uh, isolation, were, uh, physical isolation by themselves, and could have touched each other's bodies, then that constitutes consummation. And we ruled that such was the case, and that she was due the entire amount. And then I asked, this is the anthropologist's role, asked pesky questions, but surely other scholars said the opposite, so why did you choose this opinion? Suib Hassan. Well, what was he doing marrying her if he did not want to do so? He had already married another woman by the time she came to us, never wanted her. England is about to pass a new law against forced marriages, which will penalize parents if they force a girl, it is usually girls, to marry, meaning that they did not want the marriage. Because in those cases, the mar marriage rarely works out. It must be in the heart to work. It must be, as they say here, a love marriage. By interpreting rules for determining consummation of marriage in this way, the council is able to first, maximally award mahar to the wife, secondly, structure the incentives so as to add a bit more reason not to engage in the kind of please the parents marriage described here, and third, to anticipate the direction of English law towards cracking down on forced marriages. Of particular interest, and consistent with many other such instances, is that the scholar justifies the selection of this view consummation not in terms of Islamic first principles, allegiance to a particular legal school or a particular methodology of fiqh, jurisprudence, but rather in terms of his own ethical view of the behavior of the young husband. What was he doing marrying her if he did not want to do so? His comment has nothing to do with judging the likelihood of consummation or choosing among alternative scholarly opinions, but rather imputes improper motives to the husband and indirectly to his parents and judges it appropriate to punish him by granting all the mahar to the wife. So it's setting out a particular desired benefit, a maslaha, acting in the social interest uh, of the couple and of the community and of Muslims in England, 
and then taking a, a solid opinion uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Islamic tradition and applying it to the particular case. It's the sort of thing I set out last time in general. All right, that's if the husband agrees to divorce his wife. Most of the time, husbands don't show up for the hearings at the Islamic Sharia Council, and they don't even, <coughs> often they don't even answer the letters the council sends out informing them of the divorce process. Now, you may recall that a judge may dissolve a marriage and award the wife her, uh, her marriage gift, her mahar, if the husband has failed to act appropriately in the marriage. Often the wives approaching the Islamic Sharia Council accuse their husbands of physical or financial neglect, desertion, or beating, all good grounds for this sort of dissolution. But because they are often not in a position to question the husband directly, and they have, they're, they're working on str a strong sense of fairness to both parties, the Islamic Sharia Council finds itself in a continual state of factual uncertainty. They therefore do not dissolve the marriage following this rule, which would mean awarding the wife her mahar. They dissolve the marriage, uh, but rule that the mahar already paid should be returned, along with any other uh, jewelry or gifts. This is, in effect, a sort of judicial hula. Hula being the, the term for uh, the wife giving the mahar back to the husband or um, giving up her right to the mahar in exchange for his divorce. And for this, the scholars need only assure themselves that the divorce request is not trivial but little additional fact-finding is required. If they're not a court. They can't call the, force the husband to come in and testify. But there's a catch in that the mahar and the other gifts are first given to the Islamic Sharia Council to hold for six months. If the husband does not show up to claim them, they're then returned to the wife. So de facto cases of desertion by the husband are decided as they would be in most Muslim-majority countries with Islamic legal structures, with the ex-wife keeping her mahar. So that as an attempt to go as far as they can along Islamic lines, given the realities of their position in England. These procedures thus combine social pragmatism, trying to work towards maslaha or social benefit, a certain epistemological wariness, how can we really know what's going on, and an application of fairly well-established practices for dissolving marriages. Moreover, the Islamic Sharia Council scholars who come from South Asia frequently refer to practices in Pakistan and India to justify their sense that a body of Islamic scholars acting outside the state has the right, indeed the obligation, to grant women judicial divorces. Remember, these are only Islamic divorces, they're not civil divorces. Some also think that ideally the British state would delegate some of its divorce business to them, but that's, a, that's another matter. Should civil courts take account of these proceedings and judgments? That issue is, of course, on the minds of many in the legal profession, even before the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech on the subject, where he suggested that they should, in some respects, do so. But the judgments are embedded, the judgments of these councils, are embedded in a web of social understandings that cannot be reduced to the simple enforcement of a contract, at risk of misunderstanding the logic of Islamic mediation procedures. This seems to be what occurred in a recent civil case, Chaudhuri versus Udin, decided at the Appellate Court in London last October. In that case, the same Islamic Sharia Council had dissolved the marriage in their judicial hula fashion, which meant that the wife was not due the mahar, which in this case was a substantial 25,000 pounds. But the civil court ruled on the basis of a written contract that stipulated the amount of mahar owed the wife. The appellate judge stated that the couple's nikah, their Islamic marriage, quote, was a valid marriage under Sharia law and that it was then validly dissolved by decree of the Islamic Sharia Council, unquote. In other words, he recognized the Islamic Sharia Council's action as having a legal effect in English civil law terms, 
because it triggered the contractual agreement that the mahar would come due. The wife was owed $25,000. This was finding finding of both the first instance court and the appellate court last October. And the problem I see in the decision, and we, we can discuss this, is that the court took account of only part of the Islamic Sharia Council judgment, the marriage dissolution, but not their refraining to order mahar payments. The court would not have seen the Islamic Sharia Council document, and even if they had, they would not have remarked on the absence of a stipulation for mahar payment. You don't notice something that's not there unless you have some notion of what might be there. But in their decision, the civil court effectively severed the link between the form of an Islamic divorce and the mahar obligations, a link that is essential to the Islamic, to the logic of Islamic marriage and divorce. It turned the question of mahar into a matter of a distinct written contract on which the form of divorce had no effect. So doing is to misrecognize the Islamic Sharia Council's logic for no more in Islam than in English law is marriage and divorce only a matter of contract. Now I turn to France. France, France presents a very different set of historical possibilities. Most Muslims in France came from North Africa and they settled in relatively mixed neighborhoods. No single Islamic judicial system has had, in, has had an imprint on normative thinking in France. Many of the leading scholars are from Tunisia, but they came from university backgrounds. Moroccan imams predominated mosques, but their training was not in state-backed modern forms of Islamic law. Moreover, the French political and legal context prevents the development of any Islamic legal or paralegal institutions such as have developed in France. This is the sort of place that most Muslims settled in, these large apartments or seat there, HLM. In fact, this is the one in uh, Clichy-sur-Bois where the riots of late 2005 began. There are people from all over the Islamic world plus many non-Muslims living together. And here's, here's basically who French Muslims are today, and they're distributed pretty well around France. French republicanism is hostile to intervening institutions in general, those that intervene between the state and the citizen. And the idea of Islamic law taking hold is shocking to anyone in France. At the end of a December 2008 French television program about the dangers posed by increasing religious influence on European politics, the narrator asked, where will this all end? The answer was to show footage from the Islamic Sharia Council in Leyton, where the music and the long beard on the scholars were chosen to scare the audience. If we go down this path, was the implicit message, we will end up like England, where imams rule society. You, they could have just shown a headline from the tabloids, right? Would have had the same message. The French historical starting point is, of course, not community control and private arrangements, as here, but a Republican set of theories and assumptions that state institutions provide the best way to construct a society. Religion was the main obstacle to the republic, and over the past century, laws were passed to keep, keep religion out of the public sphere. Marriage and divorce are public things, shows public in the French civil law tradition, not matters of private contract, and thus the idea of contracts constituting part of the marriage makes no French legal sense. Furthermore, many in France see Islamic marriage as a way of refusing to fully enter into the common life, la vie commune, that binds citizens together. Marrying a couple Islamically who have not married at City Hall can land an imam in jail. It, it did land two imams in jail a couple years ago. Two ministers 
members of the cabinet are currently seeking to take away the French nationality of a man on grounds that although married legally to only one wife, he had married in Islamic fashion to others. The man in question replied that if having a mistress means you're thrown out of France, the government will soon be a few ministers short of a cabinet. None of the Islamic scholars I know in France have heard of imams assembling to pronounce on a divorce request from a wife, as with the many Islamic Sharia councils in England. But sometimes women do approach a scholar, such as this one, and ask what they should do to divorce Islamically from their husband. This is Dao Miskin trained in, uh, in, in Tunis and uh, Saudi Arabia. He told me what, and he, what he does. Quote, I look into their marriage and try to calm things down, asking the husband to come, and I see him too. If the husband refuses to do so, or if the wife brings witnesses about abuse, then I say to her, go to the civil court and get a divorce, and you will be doing nothing wrong in terms of religion. I just say this on my behalf. No one has authorized me to pronounce anything. It is psychological, assuring the woman that she's doing nothing wrong. She asks me to write it down. I do so. I usually refuse such requests. If I accepted all of them, I'd be doing nothing but that. But a few slip through. Other women either find, either find other imams to do so, or they just go to the courts without troubling themselves further. That's the end of that quotation. But the main tendency in France is for religious scholars to urge Muslim men and women to use the civil institutions available for marriage and divorce on grounds that they fulfill the functions necessary to preserving a marriage. Another prominent scholar from Tunisia was surprised to hear from me that in England women wanted to have separate religious divorces. As for him, a judicial divorce takes care of the matter. Indeed, he argued that Muslims should consider the civil divorce at City Hall to be required on Islamic terms. And I quote him. He's another head of an Islamic institute near Paris. <clears throat> Some people think that having to go to City Hall and fill out forms is too much work. And moreover, they consider marriage to be a religious matter. And they do so all the more because some Islamic authorities say that marriage is religious. They say, these people, that the Prophet, in his time, did not have laws about registering marriage, so it's not necessary for Muslims to do, to do so. But then you can say, and this may make you laugh, but there's something to it, that back then, the society was composed of tribes. And if someone married, he would never just leave his spouse because his life would be in danger. Everyone knew each other then, so there was no need for these regulations. But now it is different. That is reading, reasoning according to the purposes of scripture, a concept I talked about last time. Marrying in city hall is thus indicated by scripture because scripture's passages on marriage have as their purpose, their maqsud or objective, to make marriage a stable contract. The imam at the main mosque in Lyon explained why he refuses to perform, his, perform Islamic marriages if the couples are not legally married. Quote him. It causes problems when they do this if the couple separates and the husband will not give the wife a divorce. She has nowhere to turn to divorce then. The state does not recognize the marriage. I have nothing to recommend because I'm not a judge. So I cannot divorce a couple, apply a hula divorce with payment, which would be the wife's right. I tell them that marriage is for life. The imam's account is a pragmatic one. Because France lacks the religious judicial institutions that could apply a religious divorce, a woman should ensure her future ability to free herself from an unsuccessful marriage by marrying in civil fashion. The state not only provides legal force to preserve the marriage, but also provides the mechanism to leave the marriage that in other societies might be provided by an Islamic judge. 
But neither do he or other imams see it as appropriate or necessary to create Islamic tribunals in France. I think that this position is shaped by three orders of factors that make the perceived benefit of doing so less and the potential cost higher than is the case here in England. First, the issues to be resolved are less critical in France because high promised mahar, mahar that hasn't been paid but comes due at divorce, is less often a feature of marriages among North and West Africans than it is among people coming from South Asia. If finances are not at issue, then one element of bargaining and dispute is removed. Secondly, the French Muslim leaders come mainly from North Africa, and in particular from Tunisia, where marriage and divorce is handled by a single court system, and marriage is considered to be a public matter. The idea of separate civil and religious courts, therefore, makes little sense to them. Finally, the potential cost is higher than here because of the strong disapprobation by French officials of any intermediate religious institution not under state control. If you risk expulsion for voicing unpopular religious opinions, as happens regularly in France, or appearing your with your wife in a full covering, uh, as is about to happen in France, you are hardly likely to campaign for creating Sharia councils. You'd be thrown right out. Now I'm going to turn to the United States for a, a bit shorter of a discussion. You might like it if I described the United States as something of a watered-down version of England. Perhaps you suspect it as much already. The United States has sparser Islamic settlement and more cross-ethnic mixing than here, exceptions being several concentrated pockets of recent Somali immigrants, some urban neighborhoods with many Yemenis in Michigan and Pakistanis in Chicago, and the wealthy Iranians in greater Los Angeles, fairly scattered population of Muslims all throughout the United States. One finds a few transplants from England's Sharia land and some relatively fearful efforts to respond to request for Islamic divorce by others. In Northern California, the Islamic Sharia Council of California was created by one of the men who founded the, Islamic, uh, the, 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 the London Council, the Islamic Sharia Council, uh, described to you earlier, Hafiz Siddiqui, you must know him. They follow only the Hanafi legal tradition and attract people from South Asian backgrounds entirely. Their proceedings are in English, but the Chicago-based Sharia Board of America works entirely in Urdu. Their procedures also appear to be modeled after the English councils, especially after the one in Leighton. But in most cities, individual imams or simply well-educated community leaders are approached in matters of marriage and divorce. Most refuse to dissolve a marriage, but try to persuade the husband to, to deliver a talaq, to just do the divorce on his own such as is the case for the imam of the Islamic Foundation of Greater St. Louis, where I live. He won't give a divorce, he'll just work with the husband, try to get him to divorce his wife on his own. In other cities, some people have taken the step of organizing ad hoc panels to grant divorces to wives, but with much hesitancy and concern about the legitimacy of their actions. In Columbus, Ohio, for example, Mohammed Tarazi, trained in medicine in Syria, directs a charter school with entirely Muslim students most of them Somalis. He's mandated by the state to marry couples, civilly, and perhaps once a month he's approached in matters of divorce. He always endeavors to involve the imam from the couple's mosque. There are about 14 mosques in Columbus today, often unsuccessfully involved, trying to involve the imam. Although he tries to reconcile the couple, usually the husband does not live in Columbus or will not attend the mediation sessions, so he awards a hula, a divorce. I quote him, and now... This is Muhammad Tarazi in Columbus. Recently, a Somali woman from Kenya came to see me. 
When still living in Kenya, her father married her to a man from Kenya living in California. She went to California but refused to live with the man. He already had another wife. A year later, work attracted her to Columbus and she came to see me. I got two other men to decide with me, a committee, as I usually do, and gave her the divorce. Then I asked, what authority do you have to issue the divorces? His response, if we don't do something, we push these women to leave Islam or to find another man. And then they feel that they're going against Islam if they marry him because they never were divorced Islamically. God gives me the courage to do this and I hope I will get my reward from him in heaven. I will get my reward. Pause. Because these men, they act as males, not men. They don't realize that to be a man, to have dignity, is if the marriage does not work, you let your wife go. That is a true man. End quote. In his words, you can hear both his pleading with the husbands to pronounce a divorce and obviate the need for these counsels, and his experience of failure in getting local imams to cooperate with him. The disputes these men usually hear, hear usually involve assets, and their hope lies in contracts that would be enforceable in civil courts, and that would guarantee the wife her share of the assets, and also the full payment of the mahar. Muhammad Tarazi's son happens to be a lawyer, and he is at work on a model prenuptial agreement. When Tarazi marries a couple, remember he can do so in civil and religious fashion, he has them sign a letter, what uh, South Asians would call a nikanama, that specifies the amount of mahar. He does not encourage people to draw up additional contracts because he's unsure what would be honored in court. He learned about these uncertainties through his own role as an expert witness in a 2008 Ohio case where the court ruled, that, and it was upheld by the appellate court, that to enforce the mahar provisions of a marriage contract would be to violate the establishment clauses of both the United States Constitution and the Ohio Constitution. In the United States, jurisprudence varies from state to state on the question of whether a mahar agreement could be enforced. The 2002 New Jersey case, uh, Odatala versus Odatala, it's a well-known case, for example, treated the marriage contract specifying mahar as a contract rather than as a prenuptial agreement, which is usually subjected to, to heightened scrutiny, a, a higher level of proof than a simple contract is. Enforcement of mahar provisions in marriage contracts, quote, has taken particular hold in the Muslim community, close quote, in the words of a recent analysis of Islam-related jurisprudence in the United States. For multi-ethnic Muslim communities, such as that in Columbus, there is no effective, inf uh, effective informal enforcement mechanisms to compel a husband to pay the mahar, or for that matter, to pay maintenance. For these groups, for those groups accustomed to figuring a high promised mahar into the marriage contract, one the husband is, isn't expected to ever be able to pay, the civil courts become critical players in the overall process of regulating marriage and divorce. In the absence of a functional equivalent of the English Sharia councils, the United States imams are trying to refine a legal instrument that courts will enforce the contract. Now, some, a few conclusions. Islamic ideas of marriage and divorce travel transnationally in that the same basic concepts appear in England, France, and the United States. Experiences with judicial systems in countries of origin travel also. South Asians in England are used to hula divorces, divorces initiated by the wife, conducted in private. North Africans in France are used to divorces conducted at the state courts. But our brief contrastive look at local practices allows us to conclude that first, Islamic scholars and authorities draw from Islamic texts and traditions with local possibilities in mind, kind of pragmatic contextualizing of their interpretation. And secondly, because these local features differ across countries, so, do the so too do the dominant directions of their views and practices. 
How that happens has been adumbrated above and is too complex to resummarize here, but it certainly involves the degree to which the scholars take account of how their counterparts in Islamic countries will assess their decrees. The English uh, Islamic Sharia Council scholars think about this a lot. The United States scholars think about this very little because there's so much less uh, movement back and forth to these countries of origin. That's one factor. A second is how a differentiating factor is how far these leaders can go in creating Islamic social or legal institutions to act alongside civil courts. Not at all in France, quite far in England. And finally, the issues that surface as most sensitive in public opinion differ across these countries. Marriage in France, divorce in England, and contractual enforcement in the United States. The Islamic scholars operating in England, France, and the United States are innovating. More or less explicitly, they recognize that their interpretations and decisions cannot simply reproduce opinions and decisions given in Cairo or Karachi. They also are responding mainly to the concerns of the Muslims around them, and they're not relying on the major regional Islamic organizations in Europe and North America. Their worries are practical more than doctrinal. How to maintain legitimacy with respect to the ordinary Muslims who seek their services, and how to shape procedures and decisions that will be effective in social and legal terms. As we have seen, what effective means is quite different across countries. For the Sharia councils in Britain, it means gradually gaining recognition by the legal system. But what recognition might mean is far from clear, as the Udin case suggests. For their counterparts in France, effective means working within the rather more constraining French legal system and under its increasingly assimilationist political pressures. For those scholars in the United States who are less assured in their roles than are their British cousins, often they are their cousins in fact, it means trying to devise contracts for Mahar that will be enforceable, leaving only the question of marriage dissolution to be solved in-house. More broadly, and in the broader context, context of comparative social and political studies, these three cases suggest that we ought to look at two general dimensions of change pathways of migration, and the path dependencies of state institutions. On the one hand, migrants bring past experiences with them as they travel along migration pathways. Experiences in Karachi or Tunis shape how Islamic leaders think and act in Birmingham or Lyon. And they do so more strongly to the extent that communities in origin countries reproduce themselves in host countries. Here are the concentration effects idea. On the other hand, well, that's for the, that's for the uh, pathways of migration. On the other hand, state legal and political institutions create structures of opportunity for these immigrants, which dictate what can be entertained in law and public space and what cannot be entertained. Here, the legal legitimacy of religion idea. The result is complex processes of differentiation. Islam in Britain, France, Germany, or Spain is not going to converge on a European Islam any more than the Eurostar has made English fashion blur into French mode or turn the pub into a cafe. Some might have wished otherwise. There will continue to be work for those of us committed to following the particulars. As the best way, I must invoke Blake at this point, of trying to grasp the universal. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for that stimulating lecture. And are you happy to take questions? I'm one very by happy one? to take questions. One by one, as opposed to in. by uh, I think one by one is probably better because they tend to be rather specific. Okay. Yes? 
Do you want people to yeah, identify no, themselves? Um, not. Yes, if you could just say briefly who you are, it would help, help in the uh, discussion. But you don't have to. I don't want to, if that's okay. Um, okay. Okay, I can't quite hear you, though. Sure. I just want to ask, do you think, given the U.S. system where prenuptials are taken more seriously in the whole marriage contract? I'm sorry, could you, in, could, in the could, US system, could you start again? Sorry, within the U.S. society where prenuptials are taken more seriously to begin with, do you think it's easier to integrate, say, let's say, an alien marriage culture because you can kind of devise, like you said, a contract which could then... Just the whole nature of you have an agreement before you start, does it make it easier in the U.S. system than it does in the European context? To, 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 work, to work, uh, work on the basis of a contract, yes. Yes, I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, obviously, you, prenups, for example, were, you know, have been part of the United States legal culture for a long time. They're, they're only gradually... What was the outcome of that Supreme Court case? Has it been decided? The one about the real rich heiress and the prenup? Or are they still, they're still deliberating. All right, so we're all waiting to see what will happen there. Um, the, key, the key move, I think, in the United States is to devise contracts which uh, will do uh, two things. They will, they will not be considered to be prenups, and I think that really means that they aren't about dividing assets, but they're about a ma this, this, this mahar payment, which isn't considered to be assets. And they, they, don't, um, uh, they don't mention something like Sharia or Islamic law, because some of them, the contracts that I've seen in the U.S. will say, yes, such and such is a mahar due to be paid according to Islamic law, and then the judges say, you know, hang on, we, we can't possibly enter into that. Does that uh, address your question? Hi. Um, you mentioned that the um, you mentioned the Sharia Council, Islamic Sharia Council in Britain. My question is: Are the uh, are the decisions and the judgments of the Sharia Council binding, legally binding? So, if somebody fails to honour them, can they use the state app apparatus like the police to enforce them, or would somebody end up in jail for not honouring those judgments? Thank you. Uh, thanks for the question, because it's very, very important to make this clear. The, um, the Islamic Sharia Council I was discussing, we did have a member of it here, who will, I, I hope, correct me if I made any mis errors about the, uh, the Sharia Council, is a, is a mediation body. It's a mediation body. It, it, it uh, is there for people who want to use it. It's a service, and it provides a certain good. It's a religious good. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Islamic divorce. Uh, but it's not an arbitration body. There's no contract signed. There's no legal enforcement possible of those decisions. The, the Muslim Arbitration Tribunal, Tribunal, on the other hand, that I briefly mentioned at the beginning, that uh, uh, does provide for arbitration under the Arbitration Act, and people uh, routinely do sign arbitration agreements with their solicitors. Um, and as I mentioned, the head of it is a barrister. Uh, and those are, are not about these sorts of matters. They're not about divorce, because that can't be arbitrated. They're about things like a dispute over the leadership of a mosque or the sort of commercial disputes that might otherwise be arbitrated by a non-religious arbitration body. In other words, they're, they're arbitration matters, right? But, but that's not true of the, uh, of the Sharia councils. That's very, very important to make clear. There's no Sharia police uh, in England. In the, in the kind of situation you've just described, um, can one in fact then typify the Islamic system there as law, or would you? Because if it's if it's just a, you know it's not it's not a tribunal or a court, it's it's a sort of mediation body. Does does it 
counts as alternative dispute resolution? How, how would you typify it? Well, in fact, alternative dispute resolution, as I understand the term, although others might cor correct me, includes things that are legally binding, such as arbitration um, uh, tribunals. But the Sharia Council, <coughs> or the counterparts in the U.S., uh, don't have any binding legal effect. So I, would con I, I, I personally have a rather conservative notion of what law is, that it involves the state, some sort of enforcement power, uh, police power, as it were, and, and those don't exist. So no. No. Please. Um, Professor Bowen, I noticed that your talk was mainly descriptive and that you um, didn't indulge in too many value judgments, but let me try and tempt you to do so. Um, you gave a, a very interesting contrast between the approach in England and the approach in France. and. Um, oversimplifying that very greatly I realize one could perhaps say that in France the approach is rather more rigid and in England it's rather more flexible um, I'm just summarizing it in that way to provide the basis for my question my question is assuming that what you want to achieve in the long run is a more harmonious relationship between the Muslim between Muslim people in a particular country and the rest of the population which approach is likely to be more um, um, desirable in the long term? I mean, is, is an approach which seeks to impose homogeneity in society more rigidly, as in France, likely to achieve that objective, or is a more flexible approach, such as we arguably have, likely to achieve it, or, or is the danger in that latter approach that you end up with segregated groups and you end up with no, with no real harmonization at all? Right. Well, if I, had a, if I had the perfect answer to that, I'd be running for some sort of ministerial position if I were allowed to do so as a non-national, because that is the debate that's been plaguing uh, many of you here for a long, a long time. Well, let me... Um, half get out of it, but not completely get out of it. Um, I, the, you know, the, the, whole, the whole direction of the, of, the, uh, of the comparative argument, especially as I was uh, pushing it at the end, is to say that path dependency is real. That we can't think about Europe as a bunch of countries where there are four or five solutions to problems, and each of, each of the countries should say, which of those four or five that seem to be out there you know, people talk in economic terms about, you know, the Danish model, the Swedish model. Which of those should we adopt? Let's just adopt that. Things don't work like that because nobody's starting from scratch. Britain is starting from Britain. France is starting from France. Um, uh, Greece is starting from who knows where, uh, et cetera. So part of the answer is that um, there's nothing wrong with the philosophy of republicanism. Uh, one of our colleagues here, uh, Cécile Laborde, has this new book arguing for critical republicanism for, in, in French political theory. Uh, but the, the French would do well to remain within their political traditions. The, this is my normative bit, and it has having to do with France, and, and um, play up or recognize, indeed this is the, the brunt of the concluding chapter of Can Islam Be French, available for sale at deep discount, as was said earlier. Uh, <laughs> you didn't hear that. Uh, the, the, the argument there is that France, France's political system and its political theory includes the rather statist part, 
that we know of republicanism, but it also includes a strong place for, for associations. Indeed, Jean-Jacques Rousseau not only was for uh, the, the general will, will, he was also for the right of people to form associations, and the ways in which Catholics and Jews and other groups in France have become part of the republic was through associations. It wasn't just only being individuals, it was also forming Catholic associations and Jewish associations, schools, etc., and doing that, and that's what Muslims are doing as well. So. Uh, I, I think the answer for France is to um, draw from that strand of its own republican tradition, the associationist one, and recognize that when Muslims form groups of various kinds to solve problems, they're not, uh, they're not trying to leave the republic, they're doing something that's indeed in the tradition of France, in the tradition of integration uh, in, in, the French, <coughs> in the French republic. So one can, uh, I think one can draw from other country experiences to uh, intrude on, uh, introduce a critical note uh, into, perhaps, debates that are going on in other countries, as I was perhaps just doing in France, but only if you sort of get into the local game, whatever it is. And the French one is about republicanism. Uh, now, on the, on the English side, uh, you know, what would be the, the corresponding critique? Well, obviously, the French critique of, of the English solutions is just what you ended with, Stephen, that you know, everyone, everyone becomes a little enclosed community where nobody communicates to everybody else. I don't really think that's going on. In fact, what strikes me is that uh, one is more likely to see, say, uh, in the temple church, people who, who look very, very different, the one, ones from the other, coming to a public meeting than would be the case in France. So the notion that because people dress very differently in England, say, with recognizably Islamic dress, men and women, much more so than in France, uh, doesn't mean that they're retreating into communities, because in fact they're more likely to feel uh, empowered. Uh, someone like uh, Sheikh Hatham comes, uh, comes to the temple church dressed in his... his um, Islamic garb. You never see that. In, you never see that in France. That said, um, I worry, and this was my comment on the Uden case, and I'd love it if you have, if you, if you disagree with that, is that there are real dangers of thinking that uh, one can do something like what was done in India, uh, sort of delegating to different communities bits and pieces of the law. And I don't, I, not, not that you're advocating that, but, but uh, one hears suggestions along those lines. And so maybe a little bit of the French worry about legal uniformity would also be salutary. I don't think I completely dodged it, but I think I did about 80% of the way. Anyway, you'll have more, you'll have more of me uh, later on. Can I uh, inter interject a That's question? That's your privilege, <laughs> at any moment. Uh, because uh, the, the comparisons are all within Europe, but if we are talking about the same kinds of issues uh, you know, in, in the Arab uh, world, uh, many of the women would have strong positions on the grounds as to where they, you know, where and, and there have been alliances between state and women's movements to effect certain kinds of change from the top. Whereas, so to rephrase that question from, you know, how, how a feminist would throw it at you, what, what is your answer in the sense that how do you see, you know, um, better solutions for women coming out of uh, single traditions according right. to these two different kinds of path? Because historically, certainly in most of the Arab world, there have been alliances in much of Central Asia historically, there were alliances between strong states and 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 uh, and, and women uh, in, in certain, including Ba'athist Iraq, uh, in in order to effect certain kinds of change. Whereas throwing it onto locally, mm -hmm. this question, you know, the, the notion of a locally generated community can also 
uh, not necessarily work for in, in women's interests. So it's not my question. It's a much more classic question that one one knows. Uh, I mean, it's mine. It's also now it's yours. <laughs> now it's yours. Um, I rather like Ann Phillips's uh, answer to that question. Another one of our, our colleagues here at the LSE. Um, actually speaking about, in her, her uh, wonderful book, Multiculturalism Without Culture, speaking about the Sharia Council, who says that uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in England and there are certain rights of people to associate and uh, form these sorts of councils and that the critical intervention uh, from a feminist perspective, from her own perspective, is to make sure that women have as much information as possible about what their legal rights are, not to uh, condemn the existence of the Sharia Councils. So I would say that would be a feminist answer in England. In France, it would be quite a different answer. And I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll fall back on that. I think the answer depends on where you are. Uh, and I don't think there's any such thing as a universal feminist position. No, but I was asking a bit about the effectivity of these institutions in, in promoting certain kinds of interests. I would never argue right. well, for the, some right, the right. Well, of Sharia councils. Right. Well, in, case, in the case of the Sharia councils, again, and of course we see this in, in many Islamic courts around the world, they're, they're used by women. Right? And so there is a demand by women for these particular services. So that's the starting point. And then the question that comes up, again, to stick with the English case, that's what she wanted to, uh, is... Um, uh, how much do are women aware of the alternatives of the choices? Uh, are they succumbing to pressure, etc.? And, and those are those are good and important questions. So then again, I would just say that, that the question then is about making sure that uh, awareness of options is 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 maximized. Did, did I? Want to come back on that? Or you, you no, no, I don't want this to turn into right. a ping pong match uh, or, or of any kind. But hopefully, I've opened up okay. a set of questions which others may build upon. Yes, please. I wanted to focus a little bit on the interaction between the civil courts and Sharia, Sharia Council's decisions, and in particular to press you a little bit on the Udin case. Yep. Uh, I mean, I think what you said there in respect to that was that the the the, the judge in the in the, in the Udin case misrecognised uh, the logic of the Sharia Council's logic. Okay, the, the, the Sharia Council's logic was not to treat the matter solely as a matter of contract, whereas the, the, the civil court treated it as a basically as a, as a contract. Now, can we, can we think a bit about what was, what was it about the civil court's judicial logic, the judge's judicial logic, which led him to misrecognition, as it were? Uh, was it simply a matter that he hadn't been given uh, the Sharia Council's Argument here in their, in their perspective, but he, and if he had been given that, would he have would he have uh, moved more towards their position? Could he have accommodated their position, or was there something much more fundamental in the, the, the judicial system, the jurisprudence of that court, which which made it very difficult for him to or any judge to 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 accommodate the Sharia Council's position? And then, so perhaps more specifically, what has been the Sharia Council's response to to Uden? Well, the, the last bit I, I can answer because I posed the question to the registrar and he was sort of surprised that uh, he said, well, it was, but it was a hula case. She wasn't supposed to get the mahar. You know, he, how could the judge do this? Uh, 
But they weren't involved, you see, after, I mean, they, 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 did, they made their decision, and, and actually they, there was a civil suit brought against the council as well, but that's another matter, um, which was then thrown out of court. But they weren't involved at all in any subsequent stages, so they weren't aware of things going on in the court. Uh, much, you know, some of them may have been about the appellate decision, but I'm not, I don't know yet. As to the first question, that's a great question I can't answer. I think it's for somebody in the English legal system who knows more to than I do to, to answer it. Was there, could the judge, had the judge had more information, would he have reasoned differently, is your question? Or was there something about the logic in which he's operating which led inexorably to his simply saying, well, look, whatever's written down is enforceable. That's a great question. Um, the other part of the problem, though, here was that in, 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 in effect, that which triggered the coming due of the Mahar was the, the, the Islamic Sharia Council's granting of a divorce. And so the problem is really translating divorce from one system to another, one logical system to another. I think that's the, another way to, 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 to pinpoint it. But I, I'm not qualified to answer your question. Uh, a number of people here uh, could, either now or later on. It's a great question, Ralph. Does anyone want to come in on that? Sorry, a yeah, if somebody, if somebody wants to co come in on that uh, on one, that, that would be wonderful. On that before we move to the next question. Somebody has an answer. Maybe Robin. Yes. Give me this so out of place, and there are lawyers here who know the answer, but uh, Pearl and Mensky, 98, refer to a very famous case in the early 70s. Webb J. Koreshi, is it? Where the judge simply declared that Maha was due as nothing to do with matrimonial relief, but as a matter of contract. So he simply cut a Gordian knot, which 40 years ago was wholly unfamiliar to the English courts. One would expect that such a precedent had remained in the court's mind ever since, perhaps. But forgive me, I need advice here from matrimonial lawyers. Stephen, you have a thought here? Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not, as, I'm not as familiar with that case as I ought to be, but my suspicion is that uh, the problem related to the evidence that the secular court had about um, Sharia law or, or, or Sharia, the Sharia approach. And it, if, if, if the English court misjudged um, the position, um, it may have done so because the evidence in, in your view or in others' view was, was inaccurate or incomplete. Um, and that, that may be unfortunate, but that may have been the explanation. I mean, it, one might add the comment that what that shows is that um, British justice itself um, depends on the information that is presented to a court and doesn't necessarily reach the perfect answer. But what do you think about uh, Ralph Grillo's question? Had the judge known much more? Had he known about the process, the whole logic of the process that led to the Islamic divorce, would he have reasoned differently? Yeah, it seems to me quite possible that that's so, yes. Mm. Yes. I mean, I, I, as I say, I don't know enough about the case really to give a view, but, but uh, it just strikes me that the problem that people have with the decision may, may, may be because of the information that the court had yeah. or the lack of it. Right. Thank you. Yes, I've got an entirely different question, John. Um, I just wanted to know whether you have material as well as the very interesting material on divorce that you've been presenting to us. 
about how these different strands of interpretation in France and England play into the allocation of inheritance to the children of families where a divorce and remarriage has occurred and where there may be children by two successive uh, spouses of the same, usually wives of the same husband, I assume. Mm -hmm. um, and whether also, relatedly, if, if you do know uh, as yet about this uh, kind of situation and the, the comparisons between France and England, whether it's not just you who's making comparisons, but also perhaps the people you're talking to, by which I mean, do you have Muslims in France and England making explicit comparisons across the channel as to where it is easier to have a good Muslim family structure, bearing in mind, you know, self-consciously the, the different ways in which these interrelations are developing between mm -hmm. Islamic interpretation and the different legal structures mm. of the countries? <coughs> well, the answer will be short because I don't have much information about, about either of those questions. Um, I, I actually, when I started working in France, because I'd been working so much on inheritance in Indonesia, I was really asking a lot about that. Um, and what most people said, whether they were um, uh, lawyers who happened to be Muslims, worked a lot with Muslim clients or Islamic leaders, such as the people I, I, I mentioned here, their response was, uh, who, ha who has anything to divide up here? Now, <clears throat> both in that case and, is f and, and from what I know so far, although I'm really just the beginning of this sort of thing uh, in England, often the issues really uh, have to do with land somewhere else, in Pakistan or, or in Algeria. Uh, and there, uh, that's actually where the, um, uh, the, the, the awarding of, of a clear um, uh, divorce certificate or in other cases a marriage certificate here that is recognized by say the Pakistani consulate can then prove useful in Pakistan for, um, for dealing with inheritance questions and having access to land. But that's, a, that's, that's about all I know and I don't have, um, although people often will comment when I bring these up about, between France and Britain, about the other place, some of these leaders do, and I gave you a couple of examples. I've never heard anyone talk about sort of where it would be easiest to bring up a family. Um, so yeah, no, I don't have anything to, to say on that one. It does, it does imply that, that the very rich, because there are Muslim very rich, yeah. are, are are using another kind of legal framework in both cases to deal with their property than those you are describing, uh, i.e. they have their own private lawyers when they're right up the top of the pile and, yeah. and plan ahead. Uh, uh, no, I, I mean, you know. Uh, well, there are some very rich people who, uh, you, who use the, there are some very rich. Whereas these councils, I mean, the, the sort of class, uh, class, I mean, because it's been presented in terms of, of communities as opposed to, to social class, so I'm just pushing you on, on yeah. that dynamic in relation there to are, what you're No, there, about. there are rich people who use the Sharia councils, uh, but uh, again, the, the Sharia councils can't, they don't, uh, they don't divide assets. You know, as, as, I, as I said, so, so yes, they're going to courts for that. So okay, so somewhere, in both systems, uh, real estate comes under the state system. Right, now the okay. arbitration tribunal, of course, mm -hmm. could, and I don't know enough about those cases. They could be called on to divide assets. They do often advise on inheritance. Uh, again, they, like the, the, the Sharia councils, they give advice as well as giving decisions. So often they're, I mean, a, a lot of these people are, are asked quite often 
you know, questions about how you divide an estate. That's, but that's another matter. That's not actually intervening. That's just giving information. Uh, but there are some, the, 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 the MAT uh, certainly could be involved in dividing up in a binding fashion in the state. But I don't know enough about that yet. I'm not, not far enough along with them. Uh, first you and then the girl behind. Yes? The woman behind. Or it doesn't matter which. But whoever gets the microphone <laughs> first. Uh, have at it. Uh, my name is Ciro. I come from Greece. And uh, I know for a fact, actually, because I've got some friends from Sudan, as uh, you know, a Muslim, uh, that most of them try to get to England because um, they get more benefits, they, people are more acceptable, you know, it, it's, all, it's always between France or England, and it's most likely to come to England, you know, uh, that's all I know. But I don't know how it is in France, really. Well, they try to get to England. Well, sorry. They try to get to England. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a strong. Yeah, I mean, everyone yeah, wants to come here. There's a great film if you have a chance to see it called Welcome. It's a French film, but it has an English title, Welcome, which is about that. It's about the desperation with which, after the dis, uh, the uh, destruction of the Sangat uh, camp in in uh, on the on the on the coast in France, uh, what people were trying to do to get across. Yeah, well, it's easier to work here, uh, so yeah, yeah everybody is. wants to come here. But again, this isn't really an, an area I'm an expert in, but I do know that much. From the French side, yeah, it's all about coming here. Thank you. It's interesting, I think, the, the presentation about the establishment of the Sharia Council, particularly in Britain. I mean, that it's related with the, another thesis that there is some kind of decline of the religious authority among within Muslim community in Europe. I mean, that how, how, how big the demand for the, the recognition of the Sharia Council or some kind of Sharia institution among the community within the Muslim community itself? That's my question. I think that maybe some, some people, some Muslim here becoming more secularized and then they, they don't need right. any religious <coughs> right. leader anymore. That's my question. Thank you. Right, right. Yeah. <coughs> so the question was, how big is the demand for Sharia institutions anyway, <coughs> either here or in other countries in Europe? No, that's a great question. It's a difficult one for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, something I haven't said because I had, a, you know, I mean, I had enough to say anyways. You know, we could talk a lot about different ways in which Muslims living in England or living in other countries self-identify. You know, for many people, they don't, they're, they're not, they don't want to be considered first and foremost Muslims. They're, <coughs> they're something else. They're Turks or Kurds or, or, or French people or British people, right? So there's all, there are all those issues I just, I didn't go into at all. <coughs> um, and those are important issues. Now, uh, the, the second thing I would say, though, is that we often rely on, on polls uh, to make these statements like, you know, a quarter of young uh, British Muslims want to be ruled under Sharia and nobody in France does, right? Well, yeah, if you're, these words have different resonances in the two different places, right? So uh, for many people that maybe they're being asked, uh, do you want to live under Sharia? They would say, yeah, of course I'm a Muslim, yeah. But that's not very specific, right? So what precisely does that mean? One could also argue that the very fact that there are the Sharia councils in various parts of, of, of Great Britain functioning uh, quite well would lead more people to say, sure, because you know we have these institutions. Yeah, I think it's appropriate that they are here. So we never know what re people really think. You know, Sharia is one of these symbolic words, right? It's like, should we have a big society? I don't know. We'll find out on Thursday, I guess. Nobody really knows what that means. Oh, I'm not supposed to say such things. <laughs> Thank 
Thank you. Good, good evening. I'm Najma. Uh, following on from my friend's question, isn't it the case that all these Sharia's uh, institutions have been funded by the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia? Mm. Uh, my question is, where do they have the authority to speak for all Muslims mm. in the UK? <coughs> Yeah, uh, it's a very, it is a good, good follow-on from his question. <coughs> well, of course, they don't. I mean, the Sharia councils aren't, um, they're not speaking for all Muslims. I mean, they're, they're doing a very, very, what, what I try to emphasize is they're doing a very, very specific thing. I, you know, feel free to, to, to disagree if you have uh, other thoughts on that. But they're, you know, granting these particular divorces for, wi for women who ask for it, right? So it's, it's on demand. Nobody is going out and grabbing people off the street and say, hey, come and have a divorce or something. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, in terms of funding, uh, the, you know, they do charge for their services. Uh, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I can't answer the question about what sorts of funding are coming. I'm, I'm sure there's Saudi and Gulf funding going to various institutions here, like some of the Sharia councils. Just as you know, the government of France uh, has called on the Saudi government to give them lots of money to pay for the repairs on the Paris mosque. Um, as the chief security guy in, in Paris, a man named Godard, uh, said once about this whole question, he's the guy in the Ministry of the Interior who's had the Islam beat for decades, knows more about from the kind of security end about Islam than anybody in France. He said in a really good book on Islam in France that much too much is made of the funding issue. Uh, that um, you know, if if you had if you, if the hypothesis was wherever there's Gulf money or Saudi money, you've got little jihadists being trained, then that's all we'd have. You know, that's all we'd have in France, uh, because of course all the money's coming from the Gulf. That's where the money is. You know, it's not coming from Pakistan. Right? Not coming from Pakistan. But um, uh, it's it's a, it's an important empirical question. I mean, I, I'm not trying to make a joke. It's an important empirical question. What sorts of effects on decisions funding has, right? Um, I know the, an institution I know very well is the um, Islamic Institute of Higher, or Higher Studies that's uh, run by the second per French person whose picture I put up, uh, Hisham al-Arafa, who's Tunisian. Um, and it gets, a, it gets money from, from, from the Saudis, and every now and then there are a couple of Saudi guys who show up. But the teaching of the school, because I, I was a student in the school, to see what sort of ways uh, Hisham al-Arafa taught about, uh, about Islam, it was all aimed against Wahhabism. It was all Maliki, uh, drawing on that legal tradition, and he was trying to emphasize to students, it's how he talked about it, but it's also what I saw in class, trying to emphasize the complexities of the science of hadith and the difficulties of, of learning Islamic truth uh, to inoculate people against sort of simplistic uh, messages that they'd get off certain websites from Saudi Arabia, but his funding was all from the Saudis. So you know, it's we have to really look at these things empirically, not not as not assume. But it's a it's a really important question. Well, I unless we have sudden. I'm still standing. Ah, uh, oh, yes, over here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I am suggested that um, to better incorporate. Uh, state law and uh, religious law, that a compatibility dialectic was necessary. Do you think that's possible? I mean, particularly in France, that, that there could ever be a situation whereby like religious arbitration units and the state could better interact to make a more solid ground for, for a hybrid of both laws for illegal pluralism? Right, well, of course, in... <coughs> 
different countries already have this to some extent. You know, Anglican, Anglican law, what little of it remains is the law of the land here, right? I think it's the only non-parliamentary law, isn't that right? Um, in, in all these situations, and this was, this was the, the, the whole brunt of the first uh, lecture, we're, we're, we're talking about modern legal systems, whether it's Indonesia or Tunisia or France or England, in which religious institutions have a certain place. So you can, you can incorporate religious norms, religious values, religious teachings, and, and norms and things into these, these legal systems, but they're still state legal systems. And that's, how I was, that's what I was arguing for as the most useful approach to secularism, is to study these processes of encompassment, the ways in which judges, even in places like Egypt or Indonesia, which have Islamic legal system, the way judges are applying uh, state law, enacted law, positive law, if you wish, um, all the while doing so on the basis of certain sorts of codified tenets of, 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 of Islam, right? So that it's not an amalgam, it is a bringing into the state system uh, of, of, of law certain elements of religion. So um, in, in, in the French case, the French case is the most, the most difficult, you know, what could, but even in the French case, um, one does have, uh, one did have at a certain point, a recognition, a recognition by legal scholars that under certain conditions, um, uh, talaks, unilateral repudiations, a man just divorcing his wife, performed in Morocco, the effects of those, meaning the effect on the women's civil status and on the children, ought to be recognized in France. Sorry, that's complicated, but law is complicated. So there were, there were that's not right now the law in France, but there had been moments when there was some uh, willingness on the part of, of uh, French judges to, to recognize as having a legal effect um, acts performed in Islamic legal systems, right? So that's the sort of little bit you can get in France. But now the other side of it, just you, you, you asked about France because it is, it is pushing it. Um, once we move out of, move out of the sp sphere of, of uh, personal status law, the French state is hugely involved in promoting Islam. Uh, the French state, uh, as I mentioned in the first lecture, the French state pays the salaries of private religious school teachers. Now, that's mainly right now Catholics and Jews, one or two Protestants, but there are, are increasing numbers, I mean, there's two or three, right, but uh, of, of Muslim private schools whose uh, teacher salaries are paid for by the state. They're public servants. Um, the, the French state has, uh, and municipalities at the instigation of the Minister of the Interior, who happened to be Nicolas Sarkozy at the, at the important point, has, has really pushed to um, provide financial help to Muslim organizations that are trying to build mosques and cities to the point of renting them land for basically nothing. There have been lawsuits from the National Front over whether you can do this, but there's a tremendous will on the part of the state to try to uh, provide financial help such that mu Muslims have proper mosques to, 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 to pray in. Uh, the state um, has for decades sought to find ways for Muslims to um, carry out the, uh, the, the, the killing of, of animals that they need to do at a particular moment for the Feast of Sacrifice, the Ad, which is a logistical nightmare. Uh, and because everything is so centralized in France, most people live in cities, sheep don't live in cities, it's really hard to figure out how to do it. But so the French government for decades has been trying to do this, trying to pull this off, right? Um, and this all fits into the French logic, which is, which is, as I termed it in the first uh, uh, lecture, the Gallican logic, that it's the French state supports and controls, or controls through supporting, religious institutions. 
So a national level uh, Muslim council, the CFCM, the French Council of the Islamic Faith, that was created at the behest of the Ministry of the Interior, who locked French, French Muslim leaders in a chateau and said, you're not coming out until you guys agree. They did. Uh, and then he said, you get to be the president, you get to be the secretary general, you get to be the vice president. Very corporatist, very French way of doing things. And that's legitimate state religion interactions in France. Everybody has their, their, their national group that interlock, uh, that, has, that, that talks with, dialogues with um, the, uh, the president. So France has its own logic of incorporating, of encompassing uh, religious groups, which can involve a great deal of assistance to religious organizations. I mean, I, it would be interesting to tote up the figures and see whether Britain or France per capita gives more money to religious institutions. It might be just a fun experiment to do. It's, it's a lot in both cases, but it, it, it could even be more in, uh, in the French case. The French government also pays for the upkeep, either the state or the municipalities, of all churches, all religious buildings that existed in 1905. Because the famous law on secularity of 1905 was never applied to Catholics. It was never put into force. Because the Vatican said no. And the French said okay. Uh, so the state said, well, we will pay for those churches and uh, cathedrals after all, right? So um, uh, you, you've got to approach each of these countries in terms of their own logic uh, and not in terms of their ideology uh, or their sort of slogans. That was a long answer, but that's one, you know, just, it's, it's, it's going to be a different answer for each country. Yes? Oh, thank you. I'm interested in uh, your subject. Uh, my question, uh, being a Muslim in Europe, such as uh, UK or France, uh, my, uh, my question is how does he or she coordinate uh, uh, woman identity and uh, national identity. Maybe he or she has a dilemma. Thank you. How does a Muslim living in the UK coordinate national identity with religious identity? Is that the question? Yes. Yes? That's how you, okay. And or France. And or France, right. Okay, so I'll make a short answer. Time is uh, coming nigh. Um, <coughs> it's, it's, it's actually too broad to answer very well. Um, but I think the, the best answer is to say it's not a question that could be answered by a poll. Which is more important to you, being a Muslim or being an English person? You know, our, we don't run our lives that way. And we don't see our lives in terms of either or, right? All right? And so the real question is not, how, you know, is it 60-40 or 40-60? It's uh, what sorts of ways can we be fully both? Can we be fully citizens of France or citizens of Great Britain uh, and fully Muslim, fully practicing? And the answers to those questions are going to be different in every place. Thanks very much for your questions. And we can continue to talk uh, outside or here as you wish. Um, I'll be around for a while. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.